all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they've got to get them off welfare. Hi, all This is Bryant. Welcome to Cars and Comrades. I'm here with Connor, just to do a little intro to the episode. Uh, this is a interview I recorded with my friend Rafi, who uh, drives a train for the local mass transit authority here in Denver area. This interview was recorded, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago or something. And in that same time, uh, there's uh, been a lot of escalation of violence um, in Israel and Palestine. And when he, we wanted to address that. Uh, it came up in the interview a little bit uh, since Rafi was born in Israel. And I think, you know, everything that he had to say was very good. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth or anything, but um, I didn't really say much myself. And uh, I just wanted to be a little bit more explicit and uh, express my solidarity with the Palestinian people who are living under military occupation and are um, facing a, a very one-sided, one-sided violence from the IDF and other um, forces within Israel. So, um, you know, maybe the listeners might disagree with me on that uh, one way or the other, but um, I, I felt it needed saying, uh, you know, it, it's, it's uh, something that needs addressing. And, uh, you know, we're not experts by any means. We're not real journalists. We're not, you know, any sort of political analyst. Uh, but I, I think that we can see a one-sided conflict when, when we see it, you know. You know, most of the, the deaths have been Palestinian as of late. I'm, I'm with you. Again, we're not, we're not experts. Um, but I feel like probably many of our listeners were fairly you know, engaged in the news of the day and the politics going on. And, you know, I think that's part of advocating for a better world is understanding the one you live in. And, and again, from my perspective as well, it, it's a pretty one-sided conflict. It's, there are parts of this conflict that are complicated. And, and that really goes back to the original founding and this and that. And there was probably a better way that this all could have started that probably could have avoided violence. But unfortunately, that that isn't how they started. That, you know, Israel was not created in a way that cared about the native people who were already living there. And, you know, sure enough, it's come up to bite them in the ass over and over and over again. Um, And it's really, it is sad to see um, just the, the absolute brutality they bring to the situation and you know a lot of i hear a lot of you know but hamas this but hamas that hamas is just the group of people who are their political representation because you know the palestinians really do not have any political power you know oh they get to govern their own areas that israel decides what those are and israel decides well actually you know you get here are the resources you get Here's what's allowed. Here's what's not allowed. Here's here's how much electricity you get to use. Here's how much 
you know, here's how how your homes will be divvied up. Oh, here's what happens if somebody wants your home. So naturally, there there comes to be a, a militant resistance to that. I mean, it's you know, e- even if you don't like some of the things that are done, what else? What are what are the other options? Uh, you know, and and unfortunately, no one for for the last fifty, sixty, however many years has been willing to come to the table and actually negotiate a real peace, uh, an, an actual equitable way that people could live together. Um, I, I think, you know, as, as Rafi um, said in, in the interview that's going to be coming up, I don't want to give, give it away. I, I think kind of his solution was, was pretty seemingly reasonable. Um, and, you know, from from what I understand of the situation, I just feel that, you know, and I feel others who know the situation better than myself generally don't think much of a, you know, a two-state solution anymore. There, there seems to be, you know, a, a one-state solution could be something that could work. But unfortunately, if the IDF continues to brutalize people and kill children, I mean, you know, what kind of peace can, can there be? So that, you know, anyway, that's just kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of, you know, would have been uh, if things had gone differently. Um, but, you know, we can't go back and change the past. We we have to exactly work with uh, what exists now, you know, and, um, and what exists and, now, I think, is relatively, relatively clear and not that yeah. complicated anymore. It, yeah, I, I think I, I do think that maybe a, a one state solution would be good. But really, like you said, the onus is on the Israeli government and the American government really that supports them uh, to, you know, at least honor a ceasefire. Um, You know, I I believe that uh, a lot of the Palestinian uh, forces, including Hamas have called for a ceasefire, but uh, the IDF has, uh, has turned that down. Yeah. Same with the U S the U S has gone, which I don't understand everything at the UN. So, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but I, I know, you know, when the U.S. wields its power to block a vote on a ceasefire, I mean, that's pretty clear. We know what they're doing. Yeah. And, and you know, we know that the, the people are not, the government doesn't always represent the people. So the, the Palestinian people are not all Hamas. The Israeli people are not all IDF. You know, there's plenty of people that just want to live peacefully and not hurt anyone else. Uh, Although, actually, I... To jump in there, I don't know if, yes. if you've, Bryant, seen the um, video of uh, uh, Abby Martin interviewing um, Israeli people who were, you know, using very genocidal language and not like, oh, they're religious extremists. It's unfortunately the culture within Israel, because of their far right government and whatever propaganda, you know, they put just like in the U.S., you know, people are very comfortable with saying, oh, we just need to kill all the Arabs. I, I mean, I literally, they're comfortable with, with going on camera and saying, yeah, I think we need to carpet bomb them. It's it's disturbing. I mean, that is definitely a prevalent attitude. Yeah, I know there are uh, left-wing yeah. voices in uh, Israel uh, calling for peace and for Palestinian rights. Um, that is, uh, I believe, a minority viewpoint, it's, unfortunately. I feel like those um, folks um, who, who absolutely exist, um, and I can't imagine how they must feel in, you know, in that environment, you know, very much where 
can you imagine being the minority when everyone else is talking about genocide and just like, yeah, so that's also very unfortunate. And again, none of this has anything to do with, um, you know, the Jewish faith or, or anything like that. It's, it, it's large, you know, um, milita- militaristic societies doing what large militaristic societies do. Yeah. And, and most of the Jewish folks that I know in the U.S. are at the least critical yeah. of Israel, you know. And uh, I, I think that uh, if anyone wants to call us, you know, anti-Semitic for being critical of Israel, then, you know, go fuck yourself. Um, that's that's not a, a I don't I don't understand how that argument works. You know, that was how they were trying to smear Jeremy Corbyn a couple of years ago and even Bernie Sanders, yeah. who himself is Jewish and lost family in the Holocaust, you know, uh, people were calling him anti-Semitic. I don't know that, that, uh, I'm getting a little emotional just thinking about that. Sorry. Yeah. So sorry. That's a, that's a, a, it's a tough subject no matter who you are. I mean, um, I mean, this episode, this interview is, is mostly about public transit and, uh, 24 hours of lemons. So, I, I don't think we should spend too much time talking about this, but this is, you know, an issue that I felt we should address. Uh, it's uh, I, I was telling Connor earlier, it's it's a bit like if we I don't know, let's say if we recorded an, an episode like the day before JFK got shot and then didn't talk about it, you know, and it went out the day after or something like that. So it's it's a big event and uh, I felt it needed addressing uh, some way. So. I don't know. I I guess um, there's there's better sources. There's better coverage out there. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big podcast listener, so that's how I get some of my news. And um, I know Citations Needed does a very good job of uh, media coverage and um, media criticism. And they um, their most recent episode, I believe, uh, is about sort of the right wing talking points about um, Israel and Palestine. And so they do a, a good job of uh, debunking a lot of that, those uh, talking points. Yeah, that uh, that mm. episode is called uh, News Brief. Uh, so it's one of their shorter episodes. Uh, it's called Debunking the Five Most Common Anti-Palestinian Talking Points. So we, we definitely yeah. recommend checking them out. Yeah. And uh, Abby Martin has also uh, done a lot of good work covering uh, Palestine um, that documentary that uh you mentioned is uh free on youtube right now um i believe it's called is it called palestine fights for freedom uh gaza fights for freedom uh it is also on um if any of our listeners happen to have means tv uh which is like the socialist netflix um i i i know i watched it on there which let me double check make sure it's still up yeah uh yeah it's still uh it is still on means tv if you have that which also a, a very worthy service to consider getting, but uh, that was a not a not a not exactly a light documentary, we'll say. But anyone who maybe knows Abby Martin, um, who actually I, we use a lot of uh, sound bites um, of Abby Martin in some of our intros and outros, you may have noticed. Um, so if you come across her, she does do uh, a lot of good work, um, especially on on this topic. She's very good. Um, and Brian, you, you said she was just on somebody's podcast, right? Um, yeah, uh, Pod Damn America, the uh, podcast that Jake Flores hosts. 
and they're all comedians, so it's not the most serious podcast, you know, if you couldn't tell by the name. Uh, but, you know, Abby Martin is a very serious uh, journalist and uh, she does a, a good job, uh, job of explaining it. So I, I would encourage you to check out that podcast if you haven't already. It's a it's a good one. Good, 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 good. Yeah, that's, um, you know, I, I, th- I think maybe might might be worth mentioning a few of the uh, unfortunate statistics that are, are going on right right now as of uh, Sunday as well. Because right now, um, as of now, Benjamin Netanyahu is still um, telling the IDF to continue full force, uh, was the quote I saw. So um, he is telling them to continue what they're doing um, without slowing down. And what that so far has meant is um, at least 55 uh, Israeli airstrikes have been carried out so far uh, in Gaza. So um, we, we don't, I couldn't find uh, a current listing of how many buildings um, and homes have been uh, destroyed or damaged, um, but it is, you know, more than 55. Um, I, I believe it is uh, actually in the hundreds at this point. So, yeah, including uh, the offices of, uh, I believe it was the AP. So the Associated Press, uh, you know, had their office building destroyed uh, by an airstrike. They share that building uh, with uh, Al Jazeera. So Hmm. uh, that building was targeted, uh, many people suspect, because that's where pretty much all the journalism for Gaza, for at least for international press, uh, was carried out out of that building. Um, So many have pointed out that uh, that appears to be a war crime, and uh, it appears that they were... Uh, they did give people, they, they did warn them and give them a chance to evacuate, but a lot of equipment uh, is lost and a lot of journalism will be delayed. Um, so many have suggested that it could be because things are about to get, you know, really bad and we, we might not be able to see all of it. Yeah. And um, I, I believe the IDF said that they were targeting Hamas uh, people in that building, but yeah, we've, what we've learned what we've learned is Hamas is everywhere yeah. in every single home. Hamas is there. So whatever they want to hit. If they gave them warning to evacuate the building, that kind of, you know, gives <laughs> shows the lie there that, you know, why would they give Hamas warning before destroying their building? So, yeah, I yeah. don't know. The, uh, the old, uh, human shields myth is, is coming through too. That, yeah. Uh, it, it's like, that's not how it works when you're indiscriminately bombing. So as of now, at least 192 Palestinians um, have been killed, um, and that includes uh, 58 children uh, and 34 women. Um, so that is, that is a really, really awful um, stat. Um, now, Israel, of course, has suffered some casualties as well. It's very one-sided. But, uh, you know, Israel has so far reported 10 dead. Uh, including two children. So, uh, of course, regular Israelis um, are are also caught up in the violence. You know, it's you know the Israeli government doesn't doesn't care about you know like their people too. You know, it's it's this is typical. This is what governments do. So uh, the other thing um, that I saw, which of course uh, Israel is controlling um, access to electricity as well. That is an ongoing issue, and they can kind of cut off electricity whenever they want. 
which is not great for considering what's going on, uh, especially with number of people in hospitals in Gaza. Um, we know of at least uh, 1,200 people have been injured, uh, including 300 children. And, you know, these injuries are severe. Um, getting hit with a bomb is, is bad. Um, so, you know, when you have people in hospitals and they're cutting off the electricity, you know, you kind of do the math there. Um, that's obviously a problem. On top of that, you know, we know of at least... Uh, I was going to say, we'll, we'll put a, we'll put a link in the show description for if you want to donate to medical aid for Palestinians. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. So please donate. Uh, they, they definitely need help. Uh, as of now, uh, what, what I'm seeing here um, is that people in um, Palestine are calling for a general strike and a day of action um, for this coming Tuesday. Uh, which hopefully the episode will be up already, but uh, Tuesday, May 18th. So they are calling for a general strike, which, you know, I understand not everyone can just do. We don't have that kind of momentum. Um, however, there are likely to be some places where um, people can do that. Uh, the other the other thing is, you know, there's other ways to help. Of course, donating to organizations on the ground um, who are helping. There are people who will hopefully be uh, there will be uh, protests at consulates or embassies, uh, who you know, local to uh, your area, hopefully. There's uh, calls to make public commitments to Palestinian liberation and to support uh, BDS. So uh, BDS movement uh, has, you know, has been picking up steam very, very slowly um, over many, many years. But uh, this most recent round of violence uh, will likely you know, help the BDS movement uh, gain a little bit more steam uh, as the situation becomes a little bit more clear to a lot of new people. E even in the U.S., um, they were trying to literally make laws against anyone um, coming out in support of uh, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. Um, so they have come out. Yeah, I think even the Democrats were trying to pass some kind of law that would... I forgot what they were doing, but they, they tried to do something like that. That's becoming more accepted. And that, now. I mean, that to me is is blatantly unconstitutional. I, I would say that's against the First Amendment. Um, and I know uh, Abby Martin, who we mentioned earlier, is is part of a class action lawsuit uh, to overturn the law, that law in Georgia, I believe. Um, Georgia. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but there's yeah. other states also. I, I believe there is a, a teacher in Texas who was um, as part of her employment contract had to sign some sort of loyalty pledge, um, which seems insane to me, but I mean, that's, that's America for you, I guess. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah, so there are hopefully, um, check your local area. There may be, um, protests probably all this week, but, um, Tuesday will be a big one. So if, uh, if you're able to get out, do something, I know we're all, you know, we all got jobs, we're all busy, life's life is hard for all of us um you know if, if it is something that there's something going on in your area and you you are able to uh, get out and show your support um I, i'm sure the people in palestine would greatly appreciate uh every little bit yeah definitely um i also wanted to say uh that we're recording this on the 16th which is a romani day of Re remembrance uh which uh marks the day in 1944 when um 
I believe it was over 600 uh, Romani people in the Auschwitz death camp uh, rose up against the guards and uh, were all killed because of it. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of heavy history there. So, uh, world sucks, man. Yeah. The world, world sucks now. The world sucked then. The world sucked forever. And we're the ones called crazy for saying, hey, maybe we can have a better world. Yeah. Maybe that's possible. Well, I, I think the rest of this episode will be a little lighter and a little bit more optimistic. I mean, you know, I, I think the what we talked about with public transit and Amtrak and, you know, train infrastructure with with Rafi is, is a little bit more uh, hopeful. So hope you like yeah. it, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe pause, go get yourself a cup of coffee or, or whatever your beverage of choice. Maybe take a minute and shake it off a little. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I, I know sometimes I need a minute before, you know, going from a very heavy topic to uh, jokes and whatnot. Um, so maybe maybe take a break. Maybe don't. I mean, it's, it's your life. You do what you do. But um, yeah, the, the rest of the uh, podcast will be on a much lighter note um, and, you know, don't forget if you're looking for more later note, you can follow us on social media at, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, uh, Hexbear. Uh, we're, we're on pretty much all of them. So cars and comrades and yeah, yeah, you can find us there. So we post funny memes and hopefully a little bit, uh, a little bit lighter than, than some of this. Yeah. Uh, well said. And, um, I'm sure if you have an opinion on this, uh, you know, you can email us or hit us up on social media. And if, uh, if, you know, you don't suck and you're, you're talking to us in good faith, we'll respond. And, um, if, if you're, uh, calling us names, uh, we'll, um, I don't know, respond in kind. So, yeah, I don't know. That's about all I have to say. Anything else? Yep. I've, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much. In agreement there. I think cool. uh, think think we've said what we need to say. All right. Hi, welcome to Cars and Comrades, your podcast for car content with a leftist perspective. My name is Bryant, and here with me is Rafi. How's it going, Rafi? It's going well. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Thanks for doing the interview here. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Rafi here is, uh, well, I know him from 24 Hours of Lemons, but um, he drives a a train for the local uh, rapid transit authority is into all kinds of interesting cars and uh, vehicles. And uh, I don't know, he's an overall interesting fellow. So I thought it'd be good to have him on the show and talk about a few of those things. Of course, all of his opinions are his own and not those of RTD or <laughs> its affiliates. <laughs> Just want to put that out there. But uh, I think you're, you're pretty free to speak uh, about transit generally, right? Yeah, generally, it's perfectly fine. In fact, I love public transportation. I lived in New York City for three, three and a half years, and I didn't have a car. And I took the MTA, the Metro North, New Jersey Transit, even Amtrak. And I had a great time 
you know, if you live in a place that has a lot of good transit, you don't need a car. And it's, I'm a huge proponent of public transit as just a way to get wherever you need to go. Nice. Yeah. Um, I think we, um, we talked a little bit about this a little bit when I was talking to Scott and, uh, I, I think my, my view is that we should really have more public transit for people that just want to commute to work or go to the shops or whatever. And, and then save the cars and roads for the, the auto enthusiasts who want to hoon around and do donuts and street race and all that kind of fun stuff. (laughs) But, uh, maybe that's just me. It's definitely a utopia idea in a perfect society, you know, massive transit could do the everyday stuff. And then we could leave the roads for the pleasure, for the fun, for the extraordinary. Yeah. Maybe not the, uh, the city streets. We're not going to say people should be doing burnouts in downtown Denver, but maybe out in the country or in the mountains or whatever. Well, I'm going to put like, uh, I know I like this idea. I'm going to put like a Star Trek spin on it. Imagine if cities were really dense and walkable around a central transportation hub. Like if you had that one hub and then everybody used the public transit to get to that hub and then just walked everywhere, there would be no need for real streets. You just have like access tubes or access areas. And then the, the roads would connect the cities that couldn't be, you know, used by these transportation hubs and you could drive them because imagine if the place you needed to go had no roads, why drive there? You just use the public transit. Yeah, totally. And like, if I want to get to downtown Denver for a concert or for a protest or whatever, and I don't want to have to like park my car and pay for parking and stuff, I'll take public transit. You know, it's, it's a lot more convenient in that way. Maybe not, you might, it might take a little longer. You might have to wait for the train or the bus or whatever, but I mean, it's a, it's a decent network here in Denver. It's maybe not as good as New York city, but, uh, for Western cities, it's, it's a pretty decent system, a lot better than maybe, I don't know, Dallas or whatever. In the last 25 years, it's gotten a lot better. We've emphasized rapid transit to the core, which kind of leaves out the suburbs. So all the suburbs feed into the core of Denver and that's helpful and that's hurtful. The helpful part is if you need to get to downtown Denver, boom, you've got public transit. The hurtful part is the people who can't afford a car and need to go suburb to suburb, they get left out of the equation. They are the ones stuck on the local city routes for hours and hours on end because that network isn't as well developed. But again, compared to other places in the Midwest like Dallas, you know, we're a little bit better, but we are also smaller than Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm just I that was just like the most sprawled out, sprawled out city that I can think of that's like mm-hmm. very highway and car focused. Uh I guess I know you from Lemons. Um how how did you get started in 24 hours of Lemons? What brought you to that Uh, 24 hours of lemons is a really interesting story so it really started around 2012 2013 i started hearing and we and reading about these wacky races that were happening all over the country 
it's seemingly at random. And I would say, wait, they were racing what with what? And I got really interested, but years and years went on. And I said, oh, maybe next year. Oh, maybe next year. And in uh, 2017, I said, look, there's enough delays. I've got the money. I've got the time. What's stopping me? So I said, I'm going to get into the community. I'm going to get a car and I'm going to race it. And that's going to be my goal. So um, Scott, who you interviewed, actually offered me their old uh, Geo. And I said, nah, that's not lemony enough. Let me get something <laughs> truly crazy. And this team in 2017 built a 1998 Cadillac DeVille race car. Now, if you know anything about mid-90s to mid-2000s Cadillacs, they have this V8 engine called the North Star V8. It was oh, yeah. Cadillac's first, first double overhead cam V8. And it made 300 horsepower. And you're like, oh, that's, that's really good power. And the problem is they had this head stud design that under increased heat, the head studs would stretch and they would stretch over the cylinders in such a way that they would pop the head gasket cylinder to cylinder. It was a fatal flaw. It was addressed in later, like mid 2000 engines. So, you know, like if you have a 2004 and up North Star, they're usually pretty good. But the worst year is 1997, 1998, 1999. Every time, it's like a ticking time bomb. I knew this. I reached out and I said, hey, I want to buy your car. It was for sale in Texas. It was for sale outside of Dallas. And uh, I said, first things first, did you fix this problem? And there's this um, head stud kit that you can buy and install stronger head studs. And, you know, they sent me picture after picture saying, Oh, we replaced the head gaskets. We replaced the studs. It should be a wonderful engine. We took it. They did a 2017 Houston MSR race. And Houston is flat. MSR is a nice, like, road course, but it's very flat. There's no elevation change. Not really stressing the car. And they said, you know, the car ran great. We had a great time. But now we want to move on and run something faster. So I said, sure. They were selling it for $1,000, bucks, right? 1100 bucks. And I said, let me borrow a truck. I got the truck. I went down to Dallas. I got a U-Haul. Uh, I hauled it back from Dallas to Denver. And then I said, okay, I need to get a team. I brought the car out to Cars and Coffee a few times. And that's where I met James. James actually lived about 10, 15 minutes away and was also an MR2 enthusiast. So I said, look, we're going to need people. So let's just, you know, let's go on from here. And then we added uh, a couple other people who were interested in getting into lemons. And by September, 2018, we had a team, we had a running car and the car passed tech and we were ready to go racing. I took the first uh, stint. I did about 45 minutes and I went off the course twice uh, my first, my first ever lemons race after three laps, I was really racing, not just sort of cruising. And I boiled the brake fluid after three laps. So oh, wow. I was okay. going into the first corner and I went straight off. I put my foot down <laughs> and I had no brakes, absolutely none. That's I scary. went in for my penalty 
Judge Phil was my first penalty. And he's like, well, you're one of the first, you know, uh, penalties of the race. Uh, what were you doing wrong? And I said, you know, I had no brakes. And he said, you're in a Cadillac DeVille on a racetrack. You shouldn't be racing. You should be on a Sunday drive. So change your mentality. And I went back out there. I think I did another five or six laps. And then I went off a little bit because it's a huge car. It's like 44,000 pounds dry. 4,500, I think, is the official. And it's it's a huge car on a racetrack filled with Miatas and Geos. And you're trying to be wheel-to-wheel, but you can't. You're taking up the entire corner. So I gave it to my next competitor, James. And James took it out for a full stint. And then we gave it to our third competitor and he brought it out and he said, you know, the car is limping. It's misfiring. Something's wrong. We brought it into the the pits and we checked head gasket failure. 36 laps, 36 laps into a race. We had a head gasket failure. We did something because there was no head gaskets we could find for miles and miles around this middle of the race. Uh, We went into town. We got the Blue Devil head gasket in a can where you pour the head gasket fluid (laughs) into the radiator and you hope it gunks up. So it takes a while. Uh, Engine has to be cold. And then you have to run the engine. And then you have to make it work. And, you know, we waited until the second day. We attempted to fix the head gasket. The sealant appeared to be working. The white smoke stopped smoking out of the tailpipe. We thought we'd uh, solved our problem. We brought the car back out into a race. And again, race car, race environments stresses out a car. So after about another lap, the car had gone back into limp mode and was profusely smoking. So uh, we said, let's just save the car. Let's limp it around. Let's get across the finish line for that last lap. And that's what we did, and we called it a win. And that was our first race experience. Yeah, nice. I uh, I think those head studs that they designed on the early uh, North Stars were like, I think it was called Torque to Yield or something like that, mm-hmm. where they would um, torque it until the bolt stretched, basically, a certain amount. And they didn't have any kind... The, the threads were just cut into the aluminum block, so those would often pull out the threads. And I, and I believe that kit that you're talking about, the solution is basically drill out those threads and put a steel insert in so that yep. it holds, it, it has more area to grip or something like that. Is that uh, the, the kit that the team had on there? That is the kit, but you know how you have like two or three options when you replace a head gasket, you've got the like, like a $50 option the $90 option and then like the $150 option. Yeah. They went with the cheapest head gasket. Yeah. And that's what failed. So I was talking with a few of the teammates. The mechanic wouldn't talk to me about it because he's like, oh, everything I did was perfect. You know, the car (laughs) ran great. And then one of the other teammates who said, oh, yeah, we used the we did the cheapest head gasket. We're bracing on a budget. And I'm like, uh, there's things you can cheap out on, but if it's engine related, you really can't. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to take the heads off anyways, you're going to deal with 
timing chains and all that bullshit taking manifolds off, you might as well, you know, get the good head gaskets. You know, I, you I know, talked about this before on another <laughs> podcast, but like when I had my old Miata, I replaced the coolant temp sensor like five times because I got the cheapest one from Rock Auto and it would fail after like three or four months or something. So, yeah, like this is a little consumer advice for the listener. Don't don't get the cheapest <laughs> thing that that's possible on your car. <laughs> Always get the second cheapest one or the third <laughs> cheapest one, because yeah. There's a reason why it's like 50% of the other ones. Yeah. And then after the Cadillac, you guys got into uh, an MR2, right? The one from yeah, I, the guys in, out in Utah. I think we talked no, a little bit it, about this uh, with James. but So James had the story essentially correct. The builder is a guy who exclusively builds MR2s and Toyotas in Utah. He, that's his joy. That's what he loves to do. And he built this for a Utah race, I think in the like 2012, 2013, that was its first race. And then he said, okay, this is a piece of junk. I'm going to move on. I'm going to get a different uh, chassis or basis. So this car was themed as the Mormon Meteor, which was a drag car at the Utah Salt Flats. Now, to get it look like the Mormon Meteor, uh, they had to put extremely heavy steel in the form of a nose cone on the front of a car. Now, the teams that raced the car subsequently would complain, oh, this car has an overheating problem. And when we got the car, we got the car in 2018 after the, the Cadillac was kaput. We knew it was kaput. Our head gasket had not worked as a solution and we were just walking around the pits and there's this lemons judge who then owned it and he said you know i've raced this car i don't want to tow it back do you want to buy this car and i said how much do you want to sell it for and he said two thousand dollars and two thousand dollars for running and driving lemons car is not a bad deal and the thing is i'd owned i had owned mr2s aw11 mr2s in the past James owned an MR2. Our third team member, Marcus, he owned an MR2. And we looked at each other and said, we all know these cars. We all like working on these cars. Toyotas are usually a joy to work on because everything is logical and thought out. And it's like, we already spent all this money investing in racing. Let's try to do this again, but do this well. So we said, let's just pony up some money and uh pay for it and uh we got him to tow it back to our teammates garage in colorado springs and the first thing we did is address the overheating problems how did we address the overheating problems we tore off that stupid steel nose cone and we got a stock bumper and we slapped it on there and we said okay let's see if it still overheats and guess what it didn't (laughs) yeah it was just preventing the air from entering the radiator so by getting the air back to flow through the radiator, no overheating problems. Yeah. And MR2s don't have like a real big grill or anything. So like if you're blocking off any portion of that, it's, you know. Yeah. They're a, what the, I think it's called the bottom feeder design. So it sucks the air from underneath the bumper and it goes up 
And it's really not a bad design. They use it on Civics. They use it on Tauruses. They've used it on a lot of cars from the mid-80s into the mid-90s. So you had that fad of, like, the big nose, the big, not even a grill, and, like, the, 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 the gaping maw of the mouth. And it would just suck it in. It's a nice design. It actually works really well thermodynamically because you take this cool air and it sucks up and then it spits out warm air. It's really nice. Yeah. And a lot of people will uh, put the the vents in the hood, cut vents in the hood Mm -hmm. to allow that hot Mm -hmm. air uh, to go up. No, it's wonderful. Yeah. (sighs) Sorry, I cut you off there. What are you saying? I don't know. We raced that car. There was two races in 2018. It was the first double race here in Colorado. And we raced it in the... Oh, I meant to say June for the earlier race. The second race was the September race. Uh, So it was June 2018 was the Cadillac. And September 2018 was the MR2. And we actually used the same theme on both cars. So the theme was Holy Crap Racing. And there was a giant paper mache poo on the top of the Cadillac. And we said, why even bother thinking of a new theme? (laughs) We're just going to take that old theme and transplant it onto the new car. So we did the same theme. We got the same poo. We put it on the new car. We latched it down and went racing. And the funny thing is, it's an 80s MR2. It's never going to be the fastest thing out there. But seeing a giant poo zooming along the like the, the straightaways is the most ridiculous thing and the most eye-catching thing out there. And we even got mentions from uh, Lonnie Unser. She was racing, and she said, you know, it's not lemons unless you oh, see okay. a giant poo strapped to somebody's <laughs> roof. And we were like, yes, <laughs> now we've made it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you definitely uh, were one of the more out there themes. I, I really liked the the second theme that you did that was the A&W root beer. Um, cause this, it's is, the... this is such a... Yeah, go for it. I mean, because it's a AW11 chassis code. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a little nerdy, but uh, I, I appreciated it. The The thing about Good Lemons themes, there's like, you get like something that everybody can get. And there's something that like almost nobody can get. And then you get that one guy that gets every <laughs> bit and he's like, ah, I see what you're doing there. And you're like, yes, just for you, <laughs> just for you. It's like, so most people were like, A&W, root beer, that's a good theme. They never went racing. And we're like, yeah, you don't get it. So our <laughs> race car is the A&W, and then the numbers were 111. So, you know, A&W 11, AW 11, AW 11 chassis code for a MR2. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember exactly how um, Toyota does chassis codes, but like, I, I think that it's like the first letter is the uh, family of engine that they come with. So like um, the more famous chassis code is AE86. So the Aichiroku, the Trenno Corolla rear drive thing that all the drifters want um, has the same basic engine as the MR2. And uh, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> That's okay. No, you're right on the money. So we'll go with the three generations of MR2. There's AW, there's SW, and then there's ZW. So the yeah. AW11 uses the 4AGE, 
that SW uses the S chass uh, S engines, which is the 3S GE and the 3S GTE, and then the the ZW use the 2ZZ or the 1ZZ. I think it came with a 1ZZ, and the 2ZZ think, is a very easy swap. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, the 2ZZ is the one that comes in like the Celica GTS and the the higher end versions of the like Corolla and Matrix and stuff. Yep, that's the one. And it's a great motor that got put in a lot of subpar and lame cars. <laughs> like the the Sky the Skyon uh XB. Oh really? I thought that was a 1Z motor in those. Oh no, that's a, yeah. The 2Z Oh man. This is like in the depths of tri- trivia. Okay, we're not going to we're not going to go that far. Yeah, no, this is some nerd shit that our listeners probably don't care about, but <laughs> AZ... <laughs> But I, I would like to do a two Z swap on my MR2 if I uh if I had the time and money for that. But uh or if the if the A series engine blew up on mine, but um it's I don't know, it's running fine just now. So we'll see. Um The joke in Lemons is you know legendary Toyota reliability. So the joke in Lemons is the most reliable engine that you could think of for a Toyota. When you put it in Lemons, it explodes. Yeah, they were, they were talking about that on one of their videos recently. Like like the 22R truck motor is supposed to be like mm-hmm. one of the more reliable engines out there. And for whatever reason, they just have trouble in Lemons. I think it's like what you were talking about, the the endurance racing aspect of it, where you're getting everything real hot and... Um, putting a lot of strain on the components that you wouldn't normally just commuting or driving around or whatever. Yeah. Um, it definitely finds every, every weak spot. So, right. Yeah. Well, I guess one of the major reasons I wanted to talk to you is that you, uh, you drive a, a train for RTD for light rail. So, uh, I know you've, you got started doing buses and, and then worked your way up to trains. Like, how do you get started on that, and and what's what's uh, the day to day, or what's what's it, the experience of working there like for you? Okay, I'm gonna do one correction. This yeah, is sorry. a heavy rail train. Oh, excuse RTD me. RTD has that's okay. It's okay. It's a common misconception, <laughs> especially since there's like no correct propaganda. So think of trolleys as a light rail. And okay. uh, heavy rail as much more like um, uh, a, a intercity train. Okay. So, uh, like I said, I'm just going to stress that point because there are different levels. And I'm happy to talk about them. Um, I started in uh, RTD actually in 2018 as well. I was working as a taxi driver before that. Fun, fun, uh, fun life choice. I didn't know I that. I got into taxi driving. Well, I got into taxi driving just as Uber and Lyft were really killing it. Uh, and um, I I had some fun, but there wasn't really money to be had. It was just enough to live on. Yeah. Anyway, I applied for RTD. I actually applied as a rail, uh, as a light rail driver. And they I got to the interview and it's uh, man, the manager of HR. She said, what do you really want to do? I was like, oh, I've always wanted to drive trains and buses. And she's like, well, you'll probably make a little bit more money on the bus side. Do you want to just go over there? And I was like, sure. (laughs) 
when you go to RTD, uh, you have to go through uh, bus driving school, and that's basically you get your CDL type uh, B. There's A, B, and C. Um, so your CDL with uh, B is long coaches, and then I have a passenger and air brake endorsement. And, you know, you spend a month and a half learning how to drive buses really well. And that was fun. I did bus driving for almost two years. I really enjoyed it, but there was an internal job opening for commuter rail. And I said, ooh, this looks like neat. Uh, I would love to do it. Now, light rail, uh, 25 years ago, light rail was the easiest and, easiest and cheapest way to put in mass transit into uh, Denver. In the 1950s, they had ripped up the last of the trolley lines, and then they'd realized, oh no, we went too far. Buses can't do what trolleys really do well, which is move a lot of people yeah. in and out of the city a little bit quicker and more efficiently than buses. But uh, light rail is, they can run on city streets, and you don't need a train driver's license. Uh, a light rail vehicle falls under... Uh, a CDL type of license. You can, okay. they operate in this loophole. It's this legal gray area. So you can operate a light rail vehicle without having to be the FRA version of a, a driver's license. So you can have uh, a CDL and operate a light rail vehicle. And that's why they're called light rail, the okay. LLV. Um, so light rail, really good. For commuter rail, they needed us to get our um, do 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 do. I have my license right here. Our FRA two forty two forty two. So it's two four zero dot or slash two forty two. Therefore, the engineer and conductor license. It's a federal license. It basically means the federal government says that you are good enough to drive trains. Uh, that actually took. About a month, a month and a half of in-classroom work, learning about uh, trains, train handling, air brakes, other brakes, brake tests, uh, signals, and your uh, engines that you're going to be working on. And then about three to three and a half months, you have to do about 160 hours of actual in-cab train driving. And then a, a written and a practical test. And you have to pass all these. And you have to get like 85% or better on everything. And 100% on uh, signals. And that's the process that I went through uh, for getting a train license. So I started last year in uh, May of 2020. Uh, and... Uh, by the time September came around, I was fully qualified and ready to work as a engineer conductor. Cool. And for our train nerds out there, RTD runs uh, Hyundai Rotem. Rotem is the heavy, uh, heavy industry part of Hyundai, and uh, we do Silverliner V, Silverliner fives. And uh, they're mass produced in Philadelphia with the main components coming from Korea. Uh, yeah, Korea. 
and uh, they do pretty well. Um, they use them in uh, SEPTA, Southeast Philadelphia Transportation Authority. I think that's the acronym. Yeah. And um, they use Silverliner 4s, which are just a mild variation. And uh, they can, in theory, run 100, 125 miles an hour, no problem. In Colorado, they are limited to eight, 79 miles an hour because Colorado didn't want to pay for quote-unquote high-speed rail. You've got two levels. <laughs> if you go above 80 miles an hour, it's considered high-speed rail, and you have to pay different taxes or pay for different qualifications. So, yeah, 79 is pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. And that's... I've definitely hit 80, 81, 82 on occasion. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there are things to stop you from going that fast. So, hey, I, I won't uh, tell that's, anyone. That's... <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know, it's, it's a pretty, I, I love it. Uh, when I'm out operating, I have a great day. You know, I've always been passionate about trains growing up. I was the, the kid who watched Thomas, the Trank engine up to an absurdly like old age. And, uh, I would say, Hey, let's have a fun day. Let's go out and watch trains. And I would be on road trips and I would uh, count the cars as we passed a train and, go to the Colorado Railroad Museum. And whenever we would go on vacation, I would say, let's go to a train museum. Let's see a train. And, you know, now that I'm an adult, I still do that stuff. I'm planning <laughs> a, a road trip uh, through uh, North Carolina and Tennessee. And Tennessee has like the Great Smoky Mountain Railroad. And uh, North Carolina has this giant roundhouse full of trains. And I'm psyched just to see more i work with this stuff every day i shouldn't be this excited but i am no that's cool yeah and and um you were you reminded me of something uh when i i used to work at a business that was near the um intersection of highway six and sims and uh, i was talking to this older guy there and he's like, I remember when, because um, they were just putting up the new light rail lines over there. This was, mm -hmm. I don't know, like 2007 or so. And uh, that guy was like, right. I remember when they tore up all the old trolley lines in this area. You know, I took it the last day or whatever, you know, um, and uh, now they're putting in new ones. So, yeah, like, I think I didn't know that they uh, that they had that sort of you know, oops, we got rid of too much capacity sort of moment. But I, I know that there was a lot of that um, sort of tearing up of old lines in the forties and fifties, like kind of like what they talk about in who framed Roger rabbit, you know? Well, yeah. Um, Roger rabbit is a perfect example. Denver has a really interesting history with trains, not even with the, the where we can talk about like the big trains like union Pacific, uh, and we can also talk about the little ones. Denver had this wonderful thing called the Denver Tramway Company. The Denver Tramway Company consisted of tramway lines, which are really like trolley lines, but they insisted they called them tramways um, or trams. And by the 1930s, they had this gi giant system consisting of intercity and intracity. So... They had lines going up and down Colfax on uh, major uh, like streets like Broadway, and they would go for miles and miles and miles, and people used them. For the longest time, you didn't need to have a car to get in and out of downtown Denver. 
you would take a tram. They even had ones that would go to Golden, ones that would go to Boulder. It's ridiculous. And one of, I mean, conspiracy theories abound, but Gates Rubber set up their factory in uh, Denver. Gates Rubber, for those who don't know uh, Denver or Colorado history, is this giant manufacturer of tires. Yeah. And Gates Rubber said, hey, Denver, y'all should be uh, driving cars because then we can sell more tires to you. And they started aggressive campaigns in the 1940s and 50s about, you know, oh, you know, every American deserves to have a car. You know, this is the and then uh, the the highway system that was being built from the 30s into the 40s opened up and people realized, oh, this is a wonderful way to get around. And that killed a lot of smaller subway, uh, tram, streetcar lines. It's a really interesting history. There's a couple of really good books. I can find them. I'm like looking around my desk. I can't find them right now. Uh, but the history of this is the history of America. So, um, yeah, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. I mean, Roger Rabbit is the perfect example. You know, they're tearing up the the streetcar lines to make way for the highway because the highway is seen as the future, you know, interstate driving. But really, it killed it killed any semblance semblance of uh, public transit on a lot of cities. Yeah, definitely. And you can kind of see like the the remains of that system, you know, in the Denver area, if you look for it. Like just the fact that a lot of the um, suburbs have like their own little downtown core, the old town part of, mm -hmm. let's say, Arvada or Golden or Littleton or Aurora or whatever, that is basically where the train station used to be. So you have a dense little um, I suburban core. Or maybe I, am I mm -hmm. wrong? <laughs> no, you're exactly right. And uh, it came down to neighborhoods. Neighborhoods were built around streetcars and you know the zillionaires that designed neighborhoods said i'm gonna build a streetcar line to my suburb and then all the houses are going to be clustered around these uh these streetcars so you know it's not that people want to live there you make it more attractive um there's also a streetcar project and they would point out all the buildings that were built around trolley infrastructure so uh, I live by City Park. City Park and Colorado Boulevard used to be the edge of Denver. And there were uh, trolley lines that would come out here. But um, you can drive down what's now called Bruce Randolph Boulevard. Now, Bruce Randolph Boulevard isn't much to look at. But if you drive up and down Bruce Randolph Boulevard, you will see something very interesting. Where most houses face east or west. On Bruce Randolph Boulevard, they all faced north and south into the street. And because Bruce Randolph used to be the streetcar line. And the neighborhood grew up around that line. Yeah. There's a lot of cool, like, interesting tidbits I could go into. But I'm going to cut myself off there. Go read <laughs> the book. I'll, I'll be sure to find it soon. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. I think it's like the history of Denver's uh, streetcars and trams. Okay. So, yeah, if we can, uh, if if you if we can confirm that, we'll uh, we'll put the link in the comments or the description or whatever mm -hmm. of the the uh, podcast for that. 
Well, cool. Yeah, I didn't know a lot about that, but that's pretty interesting. Um, so you talked a little bit about how you got started with, you know, being a real fan and all that. Like, I know um, you were posting something on social media recently about uh, something called a wigwag that you were pretty excited about. And I co- didn't quite understand what that was, but it's a type of signal or something. Is that right? Uh, it's a really rudimentary rudimentary signal uh, for when a train is approaching. So right now we have the crossing gate arm system where, uh, you know, a train is approaching it um, by the train and the steel wheels. It completes a circuit that um, tells that the if the train is moving at uh, its top speed, it'll cross the crossing in about 15 to 20 seconds. And that allows the arms to drop. But um, crossing arms are kind of crazy. If you look at them, they've got a giant counterweight and a giant arm. And they drop down and then they drop back up. And that requires a motor to, you know, move one direction and then move the other. So Santa Fe used this idea of a wigwag. So a wigwag is a single red light on a pole. And the pole is connected to a motor inside the mount. So there's the mount. It, it comes up about five feet. And then there's the motor. And then the motor moves the pole back and forth in a articulated motion. So it would reach an apex and swing back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So Santa Fe had this idea. Look, it's just one motor and it only wants run direction. And when it hits the apex of this, it'll hit a bell. So one motor will hit the a moving uh, thing and the light would illuminate. So a light would illuminate, the thing would move, and you'd have a bell. So you've got something auditory, something visual, and something illuminating. And by having that, those three things, you can get people's attention. Yeah. You know, if, if there's loud music... You know, you 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 might not hear the bell, but you'll see it move and you'll see the light. If you're not looking for the light or the movement, you'll hear the bell and you'll know the train's coming. So that's why you have those three things. And um, the thing about that is that was how the artisan uh, ATSF, the artisan Tokopeka, Artich- I can't say it, the ATSF, <laughs> the Tokopeka Santa Fe Railroad did it. Um, and I went to go see one in uh, northwest Colorado, uh, northeast Colorado. It was by um, La Junta. Okay. And I went to go see it because there was word going around that they were going to take this uh, mainline one down. And I said, look, there's only one train that runs through there every few days. I got to go and at least see it in action. And I was like, I've got the time. Why not? So... You know, a three-hour drive, four-hour drive later, I was there, and I watched the Amtrak Southwest Chief uh, roar past, and it was honestly a great, great uh, experience. And now it's gone. They removed it. They're putting it up at the Colorado Railroad Museum in Golden, Colorado. But it won't be the same as a mainline because its preservation is not the same as seeing it in real life. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason why people like seeing things wild in nature because you're seeing them as they were intended, you know? Uh, seeing a lion in the, you know, 
in Africa being a lion versus seeing a lion at the zoo. You're seeing a lion where the lion is meant to be versus at a zoo where, you know, a lion is because it can't be anywhere else. Yeah, that's cool. I uh, I still haven't been up to that museum in Golden. I've been past, driven past it a couple times, like when they had busloads of kids for one of those like Thomas Tank Engine uh, events that they had going on there. I was like, what What in the hell is going on over there? But uh, I've never actually been inside. It looks pretty interesting. I'll have to check it out someday. That uh, that museum was the brainchild of another like rail fan in the 50s and 60s. And he saw that narrow gauge was disappearing from Colorado at a at an alarming rate. So he said, look, I'm going to get all this stuff together. I'm going to get people together and I want to preserve what I can. So they had a, uh, a railroad motel in Alamosa. Then they bought land in Golden. And every train track and train you see there was brought there from somewhere else and preserved. So it's kind of crazy to think, holy moly, they built all this just for the love of trains. But it's really amazing when you look at all the stuff they have preserved there. Yeah. And that that reminds me, um, I'm, have you ever been on, to, on the, uh, what's it called, Durango-Silverton Railway, the... Narrow I gauge. Yeah, I haven't been there since I was a kid, but it's it's pretty interesting. It's the last, I think, narrow gauge railway in operation in Colorado, at least. Um, That's essentially correct. You've actually got a couple. Um, the the Durango and Silverton one, there's one that goes through uh, Colorado, New Mexico border. OK, yeah. Um, there's uh, the uh, Georgetown Loop uh, Railroad, which is actually owned by the state of Colorado and run as like a as like a nonprofit. Okay. Uh, but uh, Colorado is actually a really great place to be a rail fan. You've got a lot of diversity with what goes on in Colorado. You've got not just one or two, but like three places that can steam up old coal fired and you know redone oil uh locomotives and uh you know that's that's really cool yeah i mean um i i'm not so much of a rail fan but i am kind of a steam engine nerd so you know that that whole uh, narrow gauge railway and um uh, there's the mining museum in colorado springs that has the old steam engines there which are pretty cool um, so yeah, there's, there's some, some cool right. stuff in Colorado. I think growing up here definitely made me more of a, of a real fan than I already was. Yeah. Cool. What, is there any sort of like, um, like Holy grail of train, uh, either a train or train hardware that you haven't seen yet that you want to see in person in, um, May 2019, May 2019, I went and I saw the big boy and I saw it uh, depart from Cheyenne when it started uh, crossing the country. The big boy, for those who don't know trains, is the largest, heaviest steam locomotive ever built in North America. Um, I think it displaces something like 150 tons. It's ridiculously huge. And... uh, Union Pacific decided to take it out of preservation 
and restore it and took something like almost nine years, ten years. Just because Union Pacific can do that, they're a giant organization. There's a couple of things that I would love to do. I want to go and ride on a high-speed train in China or Japan. I want to experience a maglev train, of which there's only a few in operation. I know there's one in Shanghai. I know that there's another one in Korea. Uh, I want to do a cross-country or cross-continent train trip. So I thought about doing it across North America. But then I said, you know, if we're going to do it, let's do London, Paris, Paris to like um, Berlin, and maybe Berlin to somewhere else, like cross-continent uh, Europe train. Because, you know, there's no comparison. Europe, they never really ripped up or dismantled their passenger train infrastructure. America is a, has a hollow shell of what it used to be. I mean, it's like really just in a pales in comparison to what it used to be. But um, this... This summer, I'm going to take a, a mini train trip. I'm going to go from uh, North Carolina, Charlotte, all the way up to the East Coast. And I'm going to just uh, enjoy it, you know? Yeah. That that makes me think with RTD, I mean, I imagine that's a, that's a union job and you get pretty good benefits like vacation and that sort of thing. Uh, paid time off. Yeah. Um, what's your yeah. what's your experience with the, the union? I get. I know we didn't put this oh, uh, in in the questions that I sent you. We but. didn't. We didn't prepare for this, but I'm okay with talking about this. I I think a union is a double edged sword because you've got a lot of egos when it comes to union membership and leadership. You've got two types of major union in the United States. You've got the union that will work for your rights and protect your rights. Um, so, you know, let's just say paid holidays and weekends. Those are both things that unions got for everyone. The reason we, we don't, the common American doesn't work on the weekend, you can thank unions. Yeah. That's an amazing benefit because, you know, they were just working men, women, and children to the bone for the company. Then you've got the union that will protect you after bad things happen. So the common thing on the bus and and trains is accidents and fatalities. So if you're driving a bus, and uh, this isn't exactly common, but I mean it happens. Uh, somebody isn't paying attention, they step out in front of a bus. You know, they could be injured or they could die. And quite often the family looks for someone to blame. They look and they try to sue the company. And the company could either settle with them or not. And if even if they settle with them, then the, the family might even try to sue the driver. What the union will do is the union will have your back and say, look, your job is protected. We're going to protect your rights, and we're going to represent you because you were doing what the company wanted you to do. You were operating the bus as safely as you could, and somebody, unfortunately, stepping in front of the bus 
it, you know, you can only step on the brakes and brake so much before something happens. Or unfortunately, it's a pretty common way to commit suicide. Mm, yeah. The top ways that people think about committing suicide are usually jumping off of a bridge, stepping in front of a bus, or walking in front of a train. Yeah, that's unfortunate. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But <laughs> but to, to get back to the point about unions, you know, the union, I would say RTD is a mixture of the two. You know, you've got uh, the union that they're advocating for our rights and they're trying their best to represent us fairly. Uh, this is comes to the one of the points where I have prior knowledge and I can't speak anymore on that subject. I will also say that our leadership right now is a very good leadership. I know the union president. I know my representation. And I have to say that I feel very confident that they are advocating for me. The thing that the union does is they go to management and they say, look, we have 1,500 employees across light rail, commuter rail, and bus. And, you know, these employees have a demand for a higher wage and uh, better health and any any sort of uh, compensation that they are fairly due. And management will say, okay, here's our new contract. We can offer you so much for a raise. And, you know, they work back and forth and they make a, they negotiate a fair contract. That's the benefit of uh, collective bargaining. That's the real joy of collective bargaining because collective bargaining means you as a whole are represented and you say, if our needs or demands are not getting met, we will protest and not work. And imagine trying to get 1,500 bus driving positions filled if we strike. They can't. So... There have been a couple times that RTD drivers and operators have striked, and it usually doesn't last for very long. But we're all told when we enter the union that you should be prepared for that day if something happens. They say, you know, I mean, COVID-19 is a very good public. Bus drivers are considered essential, and we were at risk of contracting COVID-19 because, you know, we're very exposed. So a person who is sick would get on the bus, talk to the bus driver. There's nothing there protecting him, not even a, a little barrier. So, you know, the union, I'm not saying this happened. I don't know anything about how the union responded to COVID-19 in this regard, but management said once COVID looks like it was going to stick around, that they are going to find a way to protect drivers because if they didn't we could say hey management you didn't protect us when we needed it we're now going to demand protection if you don't fulfill that we are going to strike that would be i mean public health in general but that's a very public way if you can't protect your workers why are you employing us we could find other jobs that protect us more. So that's the benefit of collective bargaining. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely some unions are better than others, but like I generally speaking, like if you, if you um, have a problem with your workplace 
maybe you, like you said, you need protective equipment or um, you need more money or something. If you just go to your boss by yourself, he's going to tell you to get lost, you know, nine times out of 10. But if 1500 people band together and say, we all need this same thing, the boss has to listen to that. So um, yeah, definitely. That's a, a good endorsement of collective bargaining, I think. I think it's the, the, the literal representation of power to the people because yeah. whereas one demand is, you know, weak, the, if, if you come as a group, your demands are taken seriously. Yeah. I know um, that economics professor uh, Richard Wolf talks a lot about unions and calls it democracy in the workplace, basically. So, and, and yeah. that, my limited experience with uh, unions, I worked at a grocery store that was unionized. I didn't, at the time, I didn't really feel like getting involved with the union at all. And I didn't, and I kind of wish I had. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're if you in a unionized workplace, you really, and you want to change something about the workplace, show up to the union meeting and and get involved with it. You know, if, if you don't, you, you get what you put into it basically is, is what I'm saying, you know, like, exactly. Yeah. So I guess when we were first getting ready for this interview um, and I sort of told you the concept of the podcast, you, you had said, you know, one of the things that you wanted to talk about was when you were growing up in Israel and the socialized medicine system that they have there. Yes. And no. So I did grow. I, I did I was born in Israel. Okay. Yes, that's very important. But unfortunately, I moved out of Israel when I was very young, about a year and a half old. And I came to live in the Denver, Colorado. It was pretty much a straight move. The experience I've had with socialized medicine is in 2017. In 2017, I was taking, I, I didn't have a job. I had plenty of savings. And I said, look, I'm going to take a few months. I'm going to go to Israel I'm just going to do the, you know, bum around, stay at hostels, have a good time. And um, one of those times I was in Israel and I started to have really intense headaches and fever. And, you know, in America, to diagnose this stuff, you would have to go to at least one doctor, one specialist. And even then, you might not get seen for days or weeks saying, oh, yeah, we, you know, our schedule is full. You'll have to visit us, you know, when you can. In Israel, the experience was great. Um, so they have uh, health clinics in every city, and they're pretty easy. You can even walk up and say, I need somebody to see me. So you walk in, and the physician, you know, you wait around. You walk in, you wait around, you sign up, and then the physician comes in. And um, in Israel, a lot of people speak English, so I was really fortunate I didn't have to rely on my elementary level Hebrew but um, he said what's the problem and I said well I've had a headache my teeth hurt uh, I have a fever and it hasn't gone away for like 48 hours and he said okay sounds like you need antibiotics so I said yeah that would be great and he said okay here's a prescription go to the corner store it's free just you know show them this and you'll get antibiotics and I said that's it and he said yeah that's it that's how it works here. So I literally went to the drugstore down the street. I showed them the paper. They gave me antibiotics. And the next day I was feeling great. And honestly, that's how medicine should be. 
you're not yeah. feeling good. You go see a professional immediately and they say, okay, this is my first course. It shouldn't have to require more than those steps. In America, it's not always that easy to do. If I had to see someone, you know, maybe it was an urgent care, maybe it's an ER, but even then it's going to be time and money and aggravation and frustration. In Israel, it was literally maybe an hour or two of just getting there and getting everything done. And by the next day, I was feeling great. And that's how socialized medicine is. Um, Israel did a great job with their COVID-19 vaccination rollout because they literally do have these uh, cores of like medical professionals in every city, every town, every village. And, you know, everybody knows socialized medicine is you go to the doctor, you get medicine, in this case, a vaccine, and then you feel better. Yeah. What else is there? I, I think I did see some uh, anti-vax demonstrations in Israel, but uh, I think it has been pretty smooth rollout, right? I don't yeah, know the whole but details. Yeah, you get but... the same. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> you got the same religious nuts or, you know, anti-vaxxers who are, you know, saying, oh, we don't believe this was, uh, you know, instructed to us by God. And, you know, they also protested, you know, why can't we have in-person services at our synagogues? And, right. the, you know, Israel was like, you know, we're trying to do our best to stop the spread of COVID-19. So one of the main guys, let's call him the head, the head, the, 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 high, the highest, the biggest vocal objector about in-person services. He's like, oh, I'm going to still have these services. And like a month later, he gets the COVID-19. Uh, and he's like, oh. I made a huge mistake. So <laughs> you get, I mean, you got these people in America too. Oh yeah. Oh, it's yeah. just a, the different thing. I mean, anti-vaxxers are so. anti-vaxxers. It's, I know I, I have that one Facebook friend that I've been friend with forever. And I sort of just like tolerate their shenanigans, yeah. but it's also important to say, I see it, I hear it and I understand it because when you have a global community or even a local community, you've got to tolerate and understand what everybody brings to the table, even the people you object to. Yeah, uh, fair enough. We're I, talking um, about, uh, oh, you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I, you know, I myself, when I was growing up, one of my parents was in the military and uh, we had the TRICARE insurance, which was kind of similar to what you described. You know, maybe it wasn't like Cadillac, healthcare, but we could just show up to the clinic on, on the base and, uh, you know, s some guy in fatigues would take your temperature or whatever. It's, uh, it was, it was, I'm sure there was some sort of copay or whatever, but it was basically free. You know, I remember going to the doctor for all kinds of silly things that, you know, today, if I had to pay for, I would not bother to go to the doctor. I would just go to, you know, look it up on WebMD and probably think that I had cancer for a couple of days until, it got better, but uh, yeah. Israel Israel has a really interesting way of paying for subsidized or or even state-run medicine. You pay a tax, and you pay a tax on every little thing, 
uh, I think it's called variable action tax. And that goes to fund streets, transportation, health and uh, services. So oh, yeah, VAT. by paying yeah. VAT, yeah, every, I think, every Israeli. I think it's a value Boy. added tax or something like that. Ah, that's it. Value yeah, added yeah. tax. Uh, but um, VAT is on everything. That is on everything. And but the benefits are when you need these services, they're there and they're available and they're funded. And that's yeah. the problem that America also has is how do we fund our big projects? How do we fund medicine? How do we fund, uh, you know, transportation? Well, you know, if everybody paid into it, then everybody could take out of it. And um, it's something that hasn't really caught on. Yeah, I haven't really looked into the arguments for and against value added tax. But, you know, I mean, there's different tax schemes, you know, there's different ways we could pay for it. You know, like, I mean, if we can pay for the military budget in this country, we could pay for, uh, you know, healthcare. It's not, it's a drop in the bucket compared to that, you know? Yeah. But I guess, uh, you know, real easy, simple question for you. Nothing too complex, but, uh, what's your, what's your opinion on the Israel Palestine conflict? (laughs) Oh, that's, that's a real head scratcher. That's no easy question. Um, I am an Israeli citizen, so I have to already say I am biased in my opinion. Um, I will say this, growing up in America has prevented me from a lot of, I would say, area-induced biases about Palestinians. I will also say that their claims are valid, as well as the State of Israel's claims. But you can't have two people occupying the same place saying that they both have valid claims. So in a perfect world, I'd say, you know, a shared country would be wonderful. In a real world, I'd say it's probably not going to happen or never going to happen the way we want it to. And uh, in uh, a, gr- a good idea would sort of make... Um, Jerusalem like an international city state. If you have Jerusalem as an international city state, then all three major religions claimed, you know, Christianity, uh, is Islam and Judaism, they all have claims on Jerusalem. You say nobody is in control, no one religion rules supreme. We all have this place that we come to and that way if it was like an international city state, like let's say the Vatican, you'd, you know, you could eliminate a lot of the problems. One of the major problems of Israel is that it's a nationality based state. So it's known as the Jewish state. The flag is literally the star of David. And you have people who object to that idea. I'm not especially nationalistic in that regard. I think Judaism should have a state, but maybe making it first and foremost, you know, it's uh, it's known as the, the Jewish democracy. And then the, the question is, which part is more important, the Jewish part or the democracy part? Because yeah. democracy means everybody gets a say. And if you make it Jewish first, you know, bold letters, 
you know, you're obviously saying even in democracy, you know, Judaism gets the, the highest say and it, it is a hard fact to deal with if you're trying to incorporate Palestinians, Palestine, or any other nationalities in your country. I don't know if there's ever going to be a good solution. I think um, things can't always stay as they are. Israel is a protectorate for a lot of things, but they're also an occupying force. So until they stop being an occupying force, you know, like the British before them, you know, natives are always going to hate a force that's occupying. And, you know, even if your claim is good, the fact that you're using military might to occupy a land is going to hurt you politically in the long run. So there's there's no good solution, but that's what it is. Yeah, I uh, that's a good answer. I um very diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, I guess we just solved the whole thing in like five minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, there's, there's no easy solution, but, uh, yeah, there's, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I should say any more. I mean, it's, it's a hard question. There's no good answer. There's no right or wrong. So, uh, it, it, it should be enough to, to say that the current situation is not ideal and hopefully something can change. Maybe the leadership, maybe the politics, maybe, you know, the politics and the leadership of all the countries surrounding it. Yeah. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a good example. Saudi Arabia um, used to have really hostile ties with Israel, and they've slowly been getting better at just acknowledging that they're a country, allowing flights to fly over Saudi Arabia on the way to Israel. Because they used to not even let flights fly over Saudi Arabia if they're down for Israel. Because they would say, why would you want to go to that country? That country doesn't exist to us. So, you know, if things change, maybe not like uh, the uh, Egyptian uh, change of like 2009-2010 when, you know, yeah. <laughs> they overthrew their government and uh, things sort of erupted. But um, maybe more like slower, less drastic change at least in the politics of the area. I mean, geopolitics hold a huge reason why Israel has such a big military force and they feel like they need to. So yeah, if things change, maybe they can get better. Well, and I mean, not to mention the U.S. subsidizes a lot of um, the Israel Israeli military and the Egyptian military for that matter, you know, and Saudi Arabian military and probably some other ones that I'm forgetting in the area. <laughs> uh, geopolitics is really hard in this yeah. area, especially since American contracts run a lot of the Middle East. Right. In basically uh, in for having a stable Middle East, even if it's heavily armed, you know, a stable Middle East is good for geopolitics because the price of oil doesn't drastically swing and you know if uh, OPEC decided to to charge you know twenty dollars a barrel you know it could mess with america politics too so I, yeah i see a lot of people blaming american politicians for the price of gasoline and i say you realize those two things are not related 
the you know not the, directly, the cost least. of gasoline is based on supply and demand. Yeah. So um I know that you've had a lot of interesting cars. A lot of them have been GM products, at least since I've known you. I saw you making a list a little bit ago of all the different ones. <laughs> like, is there any sort of um yes. uh logic or uh is it all emotion? on on what car you're buying or like what what makes <laughs> <laughs> like what's what's i guess what's um, the what's the criteria that you look for in a car that you're you're buying because you've had some interesting ones oh man when i buy a car i try to buy an interesting car yeah i've always been interested in cars i've i did make a list it was 16 cars and one of the cars i bought twice but um uh, you know, my first car was a Honda Civic, a 1992 Honda Civic. That was a pass-me-down car. That was my aunt's car, and then my brother's and my sister's car, and then my car. But the first car I bought on my own was a 1995 Ford Taurus SHO with nice. the five-speed manual transmission. Is and that the V6 one? I think that that is the V6, a uh, high-output Yamaha V6 yeah. that uh, Yamaha and Ford made in co- collaboration. of such a weird thing like yamaha made the heads and uh the ford supplied the block and you know it was put in a taurus right there was a there's a thing that the you know uh ford was gonna try to have like a fiero mid-engine kind of car and the sort of fell apart in the early 90s with uh with the probe and everything else so they said oh you know we'll just stick it in the taurus it'll fit in the taurus and the Taurus SHO, it's such a weird, funky car. I had a 1999 Jeep Cherokee after that. I had a 1997 Toyota Corolla. I had my first 1987 Toyota MR2 after that. After that, I got another Ford Taurus SHO, a 98, which is the Yamaha engineered and built V8, a 3.4 liter displacement. And that's another interesting, weird V8 with the fatal flaw of the cams. Um, they were pressed cams, pressed bearing cams that would eventually slip and ruin your timing on an interference engine. So Ooh. once your cams went, your your engine was gone. So like but the cam lobes are car. pressed on to the shaft or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could see. Yeah, I could see some problems uh, I with bought- that. the common fix is to take it apart and weld the your cams in place yeah but i had this car for about two and a half three months and after that third month i spun that bearing in the cam and uh my my i was limping along on four cylinders instead of eight on a 3800 pound car so (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't very happy. I had a 95 Nissan 240SX convertible. Nice. Which is a really cool car, except for the fact that it's a convertible and has no body rigidity at all. Right. But I bought it. I thought I was going to go drifting with it. I drifted it a few times, and then I realized, oh, my God, there's no roof. There is no structural <laughs> rigidity. If I hit anything, I am going to die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I sold that car. I went a few years without a car when I was doing my taxi driving uh, bit. 
the first car after I worked for RTD for a couple of months, I bought a 1988 Oldsmobile. Oh, I should say before this, uh, this is 2018. I got the Cadillac race car, which I don't really include race cars on this list. But one, I was working on the Cadillac race car and I was really working on this car. I was like, GM has a really weird like part sharing. So like you can buy a non-Cadillac part and put it on a Cadillac part because it's the same part on a million billion cars. And I was like, there's something to this part sharing. I really enjoy this. You can get cheap parts. I had a bunch of foreign cars and a Jeep and a couple of Tauruses. I'm like, these parts are cheap and these are fun. And the, the engines are pretty well built. This was before the head gasket failure. And I was like, I really enjoy this. Maybe I should look at buying some GM cars. So fast forward and I see this 1988 Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais. Uh, this is the four, um, four cylinder three, 2.3, uh, quad four engine. It was a squared engine design, uh, equal bore and, um, it, it, it's a funky engine, but it's also a manual transmission front wheel drive car. And I was like an Oldsmobile with a manual transmission. Yeah. I got to get this car. It was 500 bucks. <laughs> I loved this car. This car was my my daily, my beater. I loved driving it. And I bought it with 245,000 miles, and I drove it to 260,000 miles. I ended up giving it to my then-girlfriend at the time. She needed a car to get around. And uh, the timing belt shredded itself. And uh, basically, all the little things added up that I just didn't want to put $2,000 into it. Because, you know, shops always quote you at it. So I sold it to my friend. That was in 2018. I think I sold it uh, December of 2018. After that, I got a 1987 Toyota MR2 with the 5-valve blacktop 4AGE nice. uh, swap. And... That was a completed swap, and the guy had wanted to turn it into a race car, so he had ripped out the heater core and oh. basically just left it with, like, a blower. Oh, man, it gets worse. <laughs> a blower engine, and uh, uh, the windows really didn't work, and it was just uh, uh, not a great car, but it had the great engine and a light chassis, and it loved to run. Um, that was like, oh, I'm going to have a fun car, you know, have a fun car, just drive around. And then I saw it, the car I've always wanted. I had to buy it. It was a 1995 Cadillac Fleetwood hearse. Yeah. And again, I'd been really impressed by GM build quality and engines. And I said, this car looks solid. They had the rollers in the rear ripped out this uh, mom and pop lumber company wanted to like use it as their delivery they were kind of kooky and uh, i got it for two grand i kept it for two years i put twenty thousand miles on it in two years i drove it everywhere and it never really let me down i did have a ball joint fail on me outside of my workplace one day and this was in the winter and of course my only other car was a mr2 with no heater in it <laughs> in the winter and now yeah. it was suddenly my daily driver so 
I bundled up and I hoped that there wouldn't be days that I had to drive it in the freezing cold or actually snowing. And the blower motor kept the defrost working decently, but um, any sort of ice, I couldn't really use that car. So um, yeah. I kept that car. That car was a really good uh, lemons parts car because now I had the lemon MR2 and then I had the parts car for the lemon MR2. I kept those cars for a while. I ended up selling the blacktop. I was going to go to a, a race event at a local go-kart track. And I said, okay, I'm going to rent a U-Haul. We'll take the race car and you can drive the blacktop. And then I'll have both of my fun cars there on one day. Uh, I let my girlfriend, who's never really paid attention in cars, uh, she drove the blacktop and uh, oil, the oil pressure dropped to zero. She didn't Ooh. notice. Yeah. So I get to the racetrack. I drive it for like one half lap and the engine starts to clatter. And it also spun a bearing. And blacktop 4AGE MR2s, are hard to work on because there's a lot of the blacktop for those who don't know is the five cylinder valve head that we didn't get in America. Five it valves was on per the, cylinder. Five valves per cylinder. Yeah. It was um, exclusively JDM and it was on the AE 111 Corollas and a couple other JDM market cars. But getting those parts in America are really hard. So I decided I'm going to sell it. I sold the car. I regret it. Just a little bit, but, um, you know, I still had my, my hearse and, uh, I was looking around for another car as I came across a 1994, uh, Toyota MR2, the naturally aspirated, not the turbo. And I was like, oh, this is a cool car. I bought it impulsively. And then I found there was just enormous amounts of rust in the center. Hmm. So I ended up selling that to a guy in Chicago. He's rebuilding it. Um, then Again, I, I have this cycle of getting a car, fixing a car, and then selling a car, and then replacing it. <laughs> so then I saw a 1989 Alfa Romeo Milano V6, and it's a wonderful, glorious engine V6. It's not the Busso V6. It's the 2.5, which is just under it. Um, that car had electrical issues, and uh, I ended up selling that to another enthusiast. Then I decided to get modern, and um, now I have the cars that I own right now. A 2010 Chevrolet HHR SS, which is the 2-liter turbocharged Ecotec. And that's a fun front-wheel drive manual transmission car. And then I have a 2006 Pontiac Solstice, and it's the naturally aspirated, not the turbo, the 2.4 Ecotec. I really enjoy that car, too for different reasons. And uh, a couple months ago in um, July of 2021, no, uh, July of 2020, um, my friend who had the 1988 Oldsmobile Cutlass said, hey, I just fixed your car. It's been sitting in my driveway for like a year and I realized I don't want this car. Do you want to buy it back? And I was like, <laughs> yes. So I ended up buying this car back and I loved it until I remembered you like you fell in love with you fell in love with a car for a reason. Then you fell out of love with a car for another reason. I said, 
I can't love this car like somebody else. So I bought the same car twice and I sold it and uh, it's now living with new owners. And I've only met them one more time because he didn't register the car and then it got towed. And then I got sent the the tow notice. Oh, yeah. And I had to explain everything and get that all figured out. But <laughs> that was a few months ago. That was a fun, uh, fun uh, February. And, uh, yeah, that's all the cars I've owned. I'm down to two cars right now and then the race car and the parts car for the race car. Nice. Yeah, I, you let me drive the uh, the Chevy HHR that one time. It, it was it was pretty fun. It's um, it's got plenty of power, but it's it's a little bit torque steery. You know, it's front wheel drive only, so it's it's uh, it has a little bit of trouble make putting that power down sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and that's with the conservative stock tune. You can do a stage two tune, basically just upping the horsepower to around three hundred. Wow. Uh, 300 through the front wheels. Yeah. And then the torque steer goes from like manageable to crazy. And (laughs) I've just never, I've never seen a reason to make it crazy. I've always just been like, this is a fun grocery gutter. Oh, and by the way, I can do 155 easily. (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah. And is that, there was some feature you were showing me. Doesn't it have like um, some kind of launch control function or something like that? Yeah, Chevrolet wanted to make this the okay. This is um, 2010. This is pre-recession uh, Chevrolet at its best. So it's like we're gonna make this family car have a limited slip differential and then um, a no lift shift feature. So it's a five-speed manual transmission, but in order for it to accelerate the quickest and keep the turbo turbo spooled. You can go through the gears pretty much without lifting. You know, when you normally shift, you lift off the gas and you uh, depress the clutch because you don't want them both depressed at the same time. But in this feature, you can keep your foot down on the gas, depress the clutch, and go through the gears. And it won't change the RPM. So you keep your turbo spooled and you can get a ridiculous like 0 to 60 time I think it's like somewhere in the six seconds. I'll have to double check that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, uh, what do they call it? Like a two step or a three step limit or whatever. I'm, I don't know if it, how it works on your car, if it's like a drive by wire throttle or if it like cuts the spark or fuel to, I to keep it at a certain RPM. Don't rem, I don't remember. Yeah. Oh, 6.3 seconds to zero to 60 for, uh, for a, uh, a weird Chevrolet wagon. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and you recently, you just recently got that Solstice. Uh, do you have any plans on changing it or doing anything fun with it? Or are you just going to drive it as is? Honestly, the last year I've been driving less than enthusiastic cars. I mean, when you drive a hearse, it's not really an enthusiast car. It's a yeah. very fun and questionable decision. Everybody says, why a hearse? And I said, (laughs) because I enjoy it. Yeah. But I've wanted something I could take to a racetrack and get better in. Okay. So this Pontiac Solstice was for sale and it was like one neighborhood over about five, 10 minute drive from me. And I went and it's, it's decent. 
It's a 2006 Solstice. It doesn't have any bells or whistles. It's pretty much a base model that somebody put a body kit on. And I was like, that's cool. The looks are kind of love it or hate it. And um, I said, you know, this would be a fun platform. It's the GM Miata. It weighs something like 2,800 pounds, uh, makes 170 horsepower, has a five-speed manual, rear-wheel drive, decently balanced, and uh, a decent suspension. It's kind of cushy, although I have uh, no real suspension anymore. The, The shocks are completely blown out, so I'm just riding over every crack and pebble on the road. I feel it, but um, it's fun to drive, and I said, I want to go to a track, and I want to get better, and you only get better with seat time and having a decent car, so I said, you know, this is going to be my my track toy. I'm just going to get it reliable, and you can get the turbo model, the GXP, which has like double the horsepower at like 265, But it kind of negates the whole idea of driving a slow car fast. That's more enjoyable. And you have to learn to drive a slow car fast before you can drive a fast car even better. Yeah. So I'm we're all always students, even if we think we aren't. But, you know, we're all always learning. And I admit that I haven't had the most track time out of anyone and. I need to learn how to get better. So this is my way of learning. Cool. Yeah. I um, Something you said earlier, I, I just thought, I, I just looked this up. Um, that big boy locomotive that you're talking about, is that the um, the Allegheny? Is that the same one? Uh, Allegheny class? The big boy was, I think, by Alco. The one I saw was specifically number 4014. I think they only made 25. And they were made by Alco. This was built in 1941. And if you look up Union Pacific 4014, you'll find it. Okay. I'm just curious because I saw uh, a train in the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit or in Dearborn, Michigan. That's... um... I'm not sure if it's the same, but it's a very large locomotive. The uh, Chesapeake and Ohio Allegheny, also from 1941. And uh, what is it? Like 7,500 horsepower, 1.2 million pounds. So uh, on the same scale, I think, maybe not the same exact one. But um, if you're ever in uh, the Detroit area, uh, it's a a pretty cool um, setup that they got there. They've, They've got a few trains and a few like stationary steam engines and um i don't know it's pretty cool i'll Um, have to go and see it uh it's on my list when you come to big locomotives uh the big boy is one of the biggest um you can also talk about the the challenger all locomotives have classes big boy was the name of the class but uh challenger was another really big giant and uh, Union Pacific had uh, a couple of other big ones too. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at it. Yep. Yep. yep okay. Yep, yeah. Yep. Oh, huh. Tangent. It's saying there's one in uh, the Forney Museum in Denver. Huh. There is. Um, I think that's 4004. Uh, 4804. Oh, God. Uh, there's a. 
four, or, four, or no, no, um, four, no, 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 four, eight, eight, four stands for the wheel oh, classification. Okay, yeah. You've got two, or you've got two sets of two in the front for leading wheels. You've got four sets of two sets of four per piston. So you've got four, eight, eight, and then you've got two sets of two underneath the cab to support the weight of the cab. And that's why it's four, eight, eight, four. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, remember the, the numbers. Four, zero, zero, five is the one in Denver. The number. Ah, so close. Yeah. Okay. So I was off. I, it's a totally different train that, or locomotive that I was looking at in, in um, Michigan, but it's, it's worth looking if you're in that area. Um, that's a pretty cool museum. They've got, they've got other stuff too. They've got cars and whatever, if you want to look at that, but um <laughs> Um, well, I guess wrapping up here, um, what do you think the future of mass transit looks like in, in Denver or the USA as a whole, like maybe ideal vision and then maybe like a little bit more realistic vision of, of what you see, what you would like to see and what you, you see happening right now, if that makes sense. (laughs) Mass transit, mass transit is a really hard question because there is no good one answer. I think for city to city, we've already figured out that planes are the most efficient and fastest way of getting, you know, to, from point A to point B. Quickest, at least. Uh, I think. Eh, I don't know about most efficiency fuel is based. Well, but efficiency based on a lot of other factors. I mean, jet engines are becoming more and more efficient every year. And yes, they take a lot of amount of fuel, but, uh, you know, so do, you know, diesel engines. If you're, if you're taking Amtrak across the country, those diesel engines aren't necessarily the most efficient either. Yeah, I guess you're right. And, uh, city buses, not really that efficient either. It's, it's a weird sort of like catch 22. You can move a lot of things efficiently per ton, but the engines themselves are not necessarily efficient. Okay, if we're talking broad scope, I would say America has to stop being as reliant on cars and maybe think of ways to get to and from your point of work or anywhere as a, as a whole uh, based on larger scale transit. Cars are really good at doing a lot of things, especially as personal chariots, but um, they eat your... I'm a car person and I can tell you firsthand, they take all your money and they don't give you enough for it. Yeah. If you can find a way to live without a car on your day-to-day life and have a car for fun on the weekend or adventures, more power to you. That's number one. Number two, I think you said Colorado or Denver. Colorado has a weird sort of like, it's half mountainous terrain that needs some sort of vehicle especially with winter you need to get from point a to point b in bad situations that requires a car i get that and i understand that and then you've got a lot of big cities denver boulder colorado springs fort collins greeley and pueblo uh and they're all along the front range and they're all connected by a series of roads but they're also connected by a series of rails. And one of the more interesting developments is the front range rail 
committee uh, idea. The idea that you can commit a, a, a big commuter rail system and you can link Cheyenne to, to Pueblo, in essence, with uh, commuter trains. This has been gaining a lot of traction for like the last few years. And Amtrak has stepped up and said, we'll be a partner if we can get some state funding. And, you know, all these communities say, you know, if we can get money into it, it'll, it'll be beneficial because we've witnessed in the last 10 years our explosion of population. And this is only going to get worse and worse as time gets on. And, you know, we need some sort of link. We need some sort of system to get people from point A to point B without having a car. And if we were to connect all these cities that are pretty much in a row with reliable, frequent transportation, I mean, it'll be a game changer. Imagine going to see events. Uh, Cheyenne has uh, a rodeo, uh, Frontier Days, which is, you know, a world-class event. You've got Garth Brooks headlining it this year. I mean, imagine if you were in Denver getting on a train for Cheyenne, Wyoming, getting out of that train and uh, walking to a, a world-class rodeo yeah. to see, you know, Garth Brooks sing a concert. There'd be a million people who would love to just do that. Um, even Union Pacific has done that before. Oh, they okay. ran uh, they ran steam locomotive cool. specials just for the, that thing. I mean... You've got a dedicated amount of people who would do it just for that. You've got uh, people who need to get to school. You've got the University of Colorado that has campuses in Colorado Springs, Denver, and Boulder. If you could get a train that connected all those campuses, I mean, imagine saying, I'm going to take this semester in Colorado Springs and get those classes that they only offer down there. it's, It's an amazing resource. Imagine if you had friends in Colorado Springs and you're like, oh, let's go see the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb this year. Oh, don't worry about driving. We'll just take a train. You get off the train, you'll get on a bus, you'll go see the hill climb. Again, another world-class event that we only have in Colorado. You can see Bryce Millen uh, race the newest, I think he has a Bentley. Really? uh, A Bentley GT. Yeah, it just came out. He's going to be doing a Bentley GT for the biggest, like the best GT time this year. Imagine if you didn't have to drive for that. That's all these amazing things that you could do if we had a reliable, frequent commuter rail system. Um, I work for RTD. RTD is bound uh, by the region. It's a regional transportation district, and it's got 13 or 14 uh, individual districts that put in money to have regular transportation within that district. Now, the problem is, and I'm going to go against RTD for a moment, this doesn't help Colorado as a whole. This only helps the the areas in this district. The department of uh, the the CDOT, the Colorado Department of Transportation, they do a busting service, which is an inter-city, intra-city, it's city-to-city bus transportation and they started it along the I-25 and the I-70 corridors. And people love it because it goes from city to city where people need to go. Yeah, I've taken that a couple times. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a great service. Yeah. I've known people who have flown into Colorado Springs Airport because they had a better airline uh, you know, deal. And they took it back to Denver. I mean, that's 
if you didn't have to go to DIA, you could price shop around and say, I can take a bus service and save a hundred bucks on a flight. It's just going to cost me a couple hours. Why not? Yeah. I'll, I'll save, you know, a hundred bucks for a couple hours on a, on a bus. Who cares? Uh, but what CDOT really is doing well, and I applaud them for their effort is that they've organized this statewide idea of, you know, we want to move people from city to city inside the state. And if CDOT got the contract, let's just say, or we're a partner in making this commuter rail a possibility, even if you said CDOT and Amtrak work as a partnership, you know, CDOT runs the stations and Amtrak runs the trains, you've got a great partnership there because then CDOT runs buses all over Colorado. They say, okay, every train station is going to be a bus station. Every bus, you know, flows to a train. And then if you were able to make one sort of all-in-one pass where you don't have to worry about transfers, if you make this system, uh, you know, everything flows together. It's the the river, the stream into river idea that you, you make little bits that flow into bigger bits. If you make that happen, that's going to be an amazing system. But there's a lot of ifs. There's a lot of what ifs and uh, nothing is certain. But I have to say Bustang is a great service. And, you know, RTD also does good services as well. But RTD is limited by the district that they serve. And CDOT is not. So maybe if they all work together, they can make something great. But collaboration is not always... uh, what people think about. Yeah. I definitely do wish that was more connected. Cause like what you were saying about how our RTD is a little bit limited, especially like with the buses, I, I figured out once, you know, years ago, it's probably different now, but years ago when I didn't have a car, it was faster. I should say it was almost faster for me to ride my bicycle than take the bus to certain places. Like if I really, you know, put my ass into gear and pedaled quick, I could beat the bus. But like, you know, if I'm just cruising along, definitely not. So like I, I could, there's definitely room for improvement, but yeah, I, I mean, there are some, some good signs, like what you're saying with the new um, Amtrak expansion and everything. So, I mean, we'll see what the future holds with that. Uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully uh, something good for public transit. Cause I know, um, you and I are in uh, a, like a Facebook group that we, someone was talking about, like, you know, what, how do you go and get like a COVID vaccine if you don't have a car? Like, you know, it's like all the, the infrastructure is set up for a car, especially, you know, in the Western U S where it's all spread out. So like it's expanding public transit can benefit people in ways that you might not be able to think of, you know, helping people go and, and, um, go to the doctor if they don't have a car, you know, can, can help with public health in general, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting other stuff, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, they're all good points uh, specifically with the, the vaccinations. Yeah. When you have drive through vaccination sites that you can't access as a person on a bicycle or on your feet, that's prohibitively biased. Right. I, got my COVID vaccine at Denver International Airport 
And one of the reasons I chose that site is it was accepting transportation workers primarily. And it's at the end of a major rail line. So, you know, getting there was easy enough for me who has a, you know, a, a bus pass and the access to do it. But that's, again, prohibitive. You know, if people in Denver who don't have a car, who don't have a bus pass, can't walk and get vaccinated, that's a big problem. Yeah. So. Well, cool. Well, um, I guess this went a little longer than I expected it to, but thanks for sticking around and um, answering all my dumb questions. But Oh, I had a great time. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Anything you wanted to add before we sign off here? Uh, a couple of things. Number one, uh, I still love hearses, even though I sold my own. And <laughs> HearseCon is in Denver. So if you don't know about this, there is a convention just for hearse owners and hearse aficionados. So it's called HearseCon. It is the second weekend of uh, June. I think HearseCon 2021. Let me just double check. Uh, June 10th through June 13th, and I'm going to be going, so I'll see you there. If you've ever wanted to be, like, see a lot of interesting and weird cars, you should go to there. There's also a, a carnival and morbid curiosities. You know, as people who enjoy automobiles, we don't get to the subcultures enough. We go to big meets, and big meets you see a lot of interesting cars, but... You don't always see the subcultures, you know, yeah. the VW buses or, you know, the the Beatles or, you know, uh, you, you see the, the expensive ones that, you know, oh, I just got a LaFerrari. Oh, that's amazing. You spent a lot of money. Well, what about the guy who preserved a 1971 Cadillac hearse three-way combination? You know, what do those words mean? <laughs> uh, that's really cool. That goes on in Denver. And I feel like not enough people know about that. Um, second thing is, um, if you want to race in the 24 Hours of Lemons, there's a huge community of help out there. You can always reach out to me. Uh, well, maybe not me, but um, reach <laughs> out to organizers. There's a forum on the 24HoursOfLemons.com. And uh, just say, hey, I want to get involved. Let me know what's in required it's one of the cheapest way to go endurance racing. Endurance racing is crazy. Uh, take it easy. Um, but it's a lot of fun and you meet a lot of great people. And uh, don't be afraid to be that one guy who has a lot of weird cars. <laughs> I, I know it as a fact of the guy who you know showed up to work in a hearse and like everybody knows you, but nobody knows you. Yeah. If you've got a car that you're afraid to own because you're going to be like, oh, who's that weird guy? You know, he drives a Lincoln limousine every day to work. Who cares? If that's what you enjoy, do it. If you really like Ford Taurus SHOs like me, <laughs> uh, enjoy it. Do it. If you like having Toyota MR2s, enjoy it. Do it. You only get this one life to experience cars and life and don't i mean maybe toyota cameras are your jam but uh it's too life's too short to drive boring cars amen yeah i'll That's sign it. off That's my that. spiel. <laughs> well cool well thanks thanks again for doing this um 
and uh yeah I, I think that's about it i'm gonna stop recording here all right have a good we gonna make you fight five with five bits. We make you fight five with water bits. We gonna fight racism, not racism, but we gonna fight in solidarity. We said we're not gonna fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we gonna fight with socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers, applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation, will produce the best results for all of us through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.